The music you're hearing right now is made on Patterning, the award-winning circular drum machine, which is now available on iPhone. As beautiful as it is powerful, Patterning is a deep and flexible drum machine that my friend Ben made, and it's unlike anything you've encountered before. It's got an elegant circular interface, and it transforms your phone into a seriously inspiring tool for making beats. Polymetric rhythms, four on the floor dance party jams, laid back R&B grooves, and ladies, it's Ableton ready. Go ahead and get yourself a copy of Patterning for free on the iTunes store. Hi, my name is Hannah Bird, and I'm from Olympia, Washington. Please consider supporting the show by donating at patreon.com slash lowprofile. It also helps a lot when you subscribe and give the show a good rating and review on iTunes. If you still see any fellow humans and they might like the show, spread the word in person. The Morrison family will be forever grateful, and it will help Markley to keep spending time on this work. And now, today's show. Happy Apocalypse, everybody. Hopefully you're all being safe, staying home, keeping your hands and surfaces clean, staying healthy and getting plenty of fresh air. I'm Terry Gross. Just kidding, I'm Lonnie Morrison. And you're listening to another fascinating episode of Low Profile with Markley Morrison. Low Profile is the leading podcast delivering discussions and interviews about music's all-time overlooked underdogs. The artists who never get their due. And also... Chumbawamba. On today's program, Markley speaks with Dan Burt Nobacon, who spent 28 years as a founding member of that band who had that song. Dan Burt talks with Markley about coming of age in the UK when the punk movement first arrived, sewing, anarchy, getting naked, and his proud moment dumping a bucket of ice water on the deputy prime minister. In other words, so fun. If you haven't heard Chumbawamba, here's a clip from their first album. Pictures of starving children sell records. Our story begins in Twisp, Washington. So it's, it's eastern Washington, northeastern Washington. Yeah, so you're sort of here with me in the eye of the storm, then, with all this going. Uh, yeah, and, and it, yeah, I, 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 and actually, I've been. I have a girlfriend in Seattle, so I was there last week, and then I have twins who are uh, twenty, and I had to go get them. My son's in Olympia, and my daughter flew in from Los Angeles. You know, they've been sent home from college. Yeah. So I, I had to go back again, yeah. I'm about to start going over to Evergreen, uh, but it's all going to be online now. Yeah, my son's taking a year off, I think, but uh, my daughter's doing online classes. 
But yeah, my son's an evergreen. Uh, yes, being. So, am I pronouncing yeah. the name uh, Dambert? Is it just no bacon? Like BLT, hold the bacon? Yeah. <laughs> no bacon, yeah. Uh, that's not your given name, right? No, no. But it, uh, you've been using you've been using that handle for quite a while, I imagine. Yeah, I I I don't think I could get rid of it if <laughs> if I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, since the early eighties, so whatever that is. How did that come about? Uh, just you know, when we were like punk squatters and uh, making cassettes at the time, and I, I, I'd written like four or five songs, and we're doing a cassette release. And I'd just become a vegetarian, so uh, there's this knock-knock joke in England that doesn't really translate here, but I'll I'll try it on you anyway. Knock-knock. Who's there? Egbert. Egbert whom? Egbert no bacon. So Egbert in Europe <laughs> is, a, is a name, Egbert. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, yeah. I've never met one, so, though. no. No, well, in Germany, uh, and there's some in England, actually. But uh, it, that's just the first joke I ever remember from being a kid. And uh, I don't know, it just at the time, it seemed like a brainwave. Oh, I'll just be damn but no, <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, and Dan was, was my nickname at school. So that's not even my real name. But Wild. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah your, your friends write your own history for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have some notes. Uh, a lot of it are kind of drawing from uh, your bandmate Boff Whaley's book, Footnote. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of lot of great stories in there. Yeah. Whaley. He's pronounced Whaley. Boff Whaley. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. You, you frequently appear nude throughout the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't read it for a while, so... Uh, since it came out, probably, but, yeah. Well, well, for me, the story of Chumbawamba kind of starts when, uh, like, punk rock is just arrived in the UK, and uh, some some other guys meet you, they, they see you wearing a straight jacket, you turn out to be yeah. fans of the same band. The Not Sensibles, yeah. Not Sensibles. So, yeah, basically, we, we grew up, you know, both was like a year older than me so at high school he was like a year older so i didn't really mix with him uh but then punk rock happened and it, it became obvious because <laughs> people changed their the dress sense most markedly who, who were like fellow punk rockers in the high school and we were kind of ostracized <laughs> in the beginning so we kind of you know uh uh club to get you know gravitated towards each other and uh, the Not Sensibles were also, you know, most of them were in that high school. And and they started playing shows and we kind of met, even though we kind of knew each other was, uh, you know. Uh, and the original drummer of Chumbawamba, his brother was in the Not Sensibles. And right, that would have been uh, Midge, yeah? Midge, yeah, small town, you know. 80,000 population uh, punk scene which which kind of you know in Manchester much bigger city was like 25 miles away and we could get the bus there and go see punk shows over there the, the bigger bands coming through uh, so yeah like 19 
seventy late nineteen seventy seven, nineteen seventy eight, there was this 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 punk scene coming to the smaller towns in northern England. And it, it we were just the right age, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. You know, just perfect. For we were just looking to be in that place at that time. I think, and it changed our lives. And uh, you know, most of us are still involved in making music and art uh, in some way. I, I can relate. I I had a pretty, very small, very weird music scene in the Mojave Desert where I grew up, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm still friends with most of those people, and they're all still yeah creatives. You know. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of a, a blessing when uh, you find some of that because a lot of people don't. Yeah, um, yeah. I I don't know if this checks out, but I, what I gathered from uh, my research is that before you, uh, the three of you started the group, you were teaching them how to sew their own trousers. Well, yeah, it's funny. We had this thing. We we. We kind of evolved our own little niche, really. I mean, there was a lot of DIY in the general punk scene, and it was it was funny. We 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 had a band before Chumwama. They were called Chimpy's Banana. And right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we only lasted eighteen months and played I don't know twenty shows and did a cassette album. Uh, and uh, yeah, we just I I don't know. We just like I, my momo was so so. I said, oh, can I use your machine? I want to... Initially, it was like, you know, uh, late 70s, all the jeans were like flared, wide flares, you know, mid-70s. Yeah. And and it's like, oh, can we turn them into drain pipes? Oh, man was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll show you how to use the machine. And then from there, I don't know, just my imagination and creativity, I, I just started adapting clothes. I guess they call it upcycling these days. Or, or actually making things from scratch, you know. Sure. Uh, and, you know, painting slogans on them and everything and stenciling. How about the straight jacket? What was that all about? <laughs> it, it was just like, uh, I don't know if you know, like a Parker coat. Uh, they have like a, a quilted lining, like crisscross. And if you turn it inside out, it kind of looks like a straight jacket. So. And I just like sewed <laughs> buckles on it, and you know we hung out on street corners, all weird and everything, dressed weird, and people were like, uh, you know. And there was kind of a, an antagonism towards punk, punk rockers at that time from general society, uh, but I guess that was part of it, trying to be different. So, uh, did Chimp Eats Banana, did y'all put out some cassettes, or? We just had one cassette album, yeah. I don't like girls, I don't like bushels, I don't like boys, I I don't like cars, I don't like money, it's sunny. sort of evolved into Chumbawamba, is that is that right? It pretty much did, yeah. I mean, there were like six or seven of us, and we were all in that high school, and then three of us, uh, basically, you know, we were doing that, you know, in late high school, and then, oh, it's time to go to college, and uh, 
three of us, me, Boff and Midge, decided to, they actually transferred into the college I'd applied to, which was in Leeds, a bigger city on the eastern side in northern England. And so the three of us were in college together and we shared all this little dorm. And all we did is went to see shows <laughs> and like, you know, wrote songs and stuff. And and so that is where Chumawamba really kind of uh, formed. And then, you know, a couple of the girls from Burnley, where we grew up, uh, we kind of invited them to join and it, and it just sort of continued from there, really. Wow, and I guess there's uh, often some confusion with uh, how to write or pronounce the band name over the years. Mm-hmm. I reckon that probably slowed down in the late 90s, but... Yeah, we we had it on our website for a while where we collected all the posters and, you know, flyers where the venue or the promoter had spelled it wrong. And then when in the yeah, and then like in the when we were became full time touring in like the mid nineties, we put it in the right era. If you spell it wrong, you have to donate a hundred dollars or whatever hundred pounds to the local spelling bee. Oh, that was in the writer. I don't know if anyone ever did it, but people still spell it wrong. When when you started out, um, there's a lot of performance art, right? Yeah, uh, you know, I think there's some on YouTube from the early days various you know because in those uh, years to get the big clunky vhs cameras yeah uh, and they were i don't know they were few and far between i think uh we didn't really have one we didn't we didn't make videos of ourselves or anything like that yeah my folks had one when i grew up but i'm a i'm a little bit younger than you yeah yeah and like oh somebody wants to film it it's like a big deal because oh they've got a camera as well and they're they know what they're doing, <laughs> though they, they didn't always know what they were doing. But but I, so I know, yeah, there is some footage out there. And I, oh, you hear that? I'm yeah, yeah. Where are you? Out. So I am in downtown Olympia, um, and I, oh, okay, yeah. I'm right on Fourth Avenue. So uh, yeah, I'm in. Oh, right. Uh, I was just there like, the other day. <laughs> oh wow! On Monday. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've been here for about 13 years. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah. I'm recording in my engineer's apartment because he has fled to Texas at the behest of his parents. Yeah. So I'm using it as my studio because I can't yeah. do this at home because my uh, I got a three and five year old daughter and yeah, they uh, they love to barge in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I kind of remember how that goes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about your the the performance art, you know, hanging up, hanging up a laundry line and pinning up slogans and uh, poetry and just putting on like putting on a a damn show. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's when you're in the very early days. We were so the Chippies Pavana did a bit of theatre as well, and and it just seemed natural to us to to carry on with that, and then. You know, we went to see Crass, they came and played locally, and it, it was just kind of mind-blowing how they basically, you know, they're just playing in a, like a community centre, but they transformed the stage with the backdrops and the, they had like TV screens, you know, and films that they'd made, and, and it was just, it, that kind of inspired us as well, and 
not many other people would. I mean, people did the backdrop thing in the anarcho-punk scene in England, but nobody really incorporated theatre. And, and it took us a, a little while. We had these great ideas, and but we were so kind of wooden on stage. Uh, it probably took a couple of years before, especially me. You know, I was like a front person, and I I, I distinctly remember I, I loved being on stage, but I, it took me. Probably two or three years before I started thinking, oh, I, I can actually, you know, work with this. Because, you know, I didn't have any training in theatre or in music. Uh, but then, you know, I mean, I did it for 22 years. So you evolve as a performer and creative ideas. And uh, it became, I guess, one of our trademarks, you know. I'm trying to figure out how to, uh, we, we sort of transition out of the sort of uh, hardcore punk and, uh, a, you know, there was a lot of acapella. The club is all there, Stand up now, stand up now. The club is all there, Stand up now. The club is all there, To keep all men in awe. But they no vision saw. To maintain such a law. Stand up now, diggers all. Really nice, and uh, you know, for a bunch of self-proclaimed non-musicians. Um, yeah, you guys were well, very yeah. diverse from the get-go, and and you know, like you got your hardcore acapella, like sort of uh, traditional folk, disco, dub, like everything's on the table. Yeah, I think that's right, and that that was probably another one of our. You know, if we had an ethos, it was like, right, we're we're doing a tour or we're doing a record, and we want to try and uh, a make it interesting for whoever's listening or coming to a show. So you know, the theatre and everything, but the sound as well. And and you know, we grew from three people very quickly to six, and then eight. Uh, and that's a lot of you know different influences musically. We had you know and after the initial punk thing where it's like reject everything that's happened it's like oh well there's there's people in musical history who are doing similar really cool things you know for instance like the mothers of invention frank zappa we we had a phase of like uh really the early albums where they were kind of political as well yeah uh, i i grew up in the city where zappa and beefheart grew up and so yeah, there was still weird stuff going on there in the '90s. Cut you off there. No, 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 and and you know a lot of those early albums, they just all the songs run into each other. So we started doing that on our albums, you know, and sticking little weird bits in as well as just normal songs, and 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 you know grabbing recordings of people, you know, commentators or politicians, and juxtaposing them with our whatever we're trying to say and uh and he just made it way more interesting for us and hopefully for people who who listen to the records uh and 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 it was also you know we grew up with the beatles who and you know if you look at the beatles albums every album there's some significant apart from the first couple where they think well, right, we're going to try experiment with the sound and try something different. Yeah. And, and they do, and there's like an evolution through their albums, and you can see it. 
and so we kind of aspire to that as well. We, if we were doing that right, we've got to make it different from the last one in some way. Uh, and some people love that, and some people are like, oh, you know, they want the old stuff or whatever it is, and uh, but uh, that's kind of inevitable, really. Uh, but for us, I mean, that's partly why it remained interesting for so long, you know, because we tried to shake it up a little bit for ourselves. So I remember I was a I was a teenager when uh, you guys had a 500 million selling album and uh by the way this podcast is generally focusing on artists who have maybe sold 500 albums (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) it's quite it's quite different but i feel like uh the story behind it is uh just very vital and just that um that's sort of what you came out of and that's where uh you know that's the background but I I was I was train hopping in uh, in the south like uh, in Florida I was uh, riding freight trains after being at the international noise conference, <laughs> uh, <laughs> trying to figure out how I was going to get back to Olympia. Uh, this is about maybe like fourteen years ago, and uh, yeah, this this punk kid we ran into from Vermont had just this big like really cool as shit looking chumba wumba patch homemade on his uh. back and uh he had some tapes and i had a tape player and uh he sort of hit me to the uh evolution of it all and yeah told me that when you guys hit it big you know you were donating to a lot of uh you know nonprofits and uh i, I read that you bought a really cool vacuum cleaner <laughs> is that in the book? That's in the book. I so, <laughs> like the Rolls Royce of vacuum cleaners. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we were a band for 15 years before we had that big album. So right. we, basically, our evolution, like I said, we started off making cassettes, and then we had like a seven-inch vinyl EP on our own label. And then we found like a distributor for the first album, and... So it was like a small, small indie, and then an, another, the next record company, a little bit bigger, and then a very established indie label in England who had Björk on their books. Uh, and we were with them right before we had the big album. In fact, we were recording it for them, and they were running out of money, and so they were dumping bands. And That was One Little Indian? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then so we had this. Well, we had to finish that album with our own money, and and it's like, well, you know, we start so you know we had really kind of astute management who was circulating that album, and suddenly it was like major labels chasing us, but not from England because we in England in Britain people oh Chumbawamba you know you had a reputation there. yeah even though we'd occasionally get played on the radio. Uh, but none of the English companies were interested in it, so it was kind of it was kind of really clever in a way on part of our management because these European companies and the Americans kind of got in a bidding war with each other. To, I know it was basically because the album, you know, we'd record the album and that song was being circulated in the industry. I don't know how this all works. Probably very different today, and suddenly. Uh, 
in in the US there was a guy I can't remember his name, but he worked for VH1, is it? And he was employed by Universal. As his official title was Taste Maker. Okay. <laughs> you can believe that. <laughs> wow. And he basically said to the guys at Universal, if you do one thing this year, sign this band on the basis of that one song. Wow. And they did. They they bent over backwards to sign us, and we had a few offers, and the, the, we signed with them because it was the most uh, it gave us the most artistic freedom. I'd like to interject that Tastemaker sounds exactly like a song title that you guys would come up yeah. with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I also want to point out that you keep referring it to as that song, and I think it's fine to just leave it at that. Um, yeah. At this yeah. point. Yeah. I, 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 you know, and we, you know, when we were in that time period where suddenly, you know, these big companies are chasing us and we're like, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. Why? You know, what, what's going on? And, and you know, we had band meetings, which we always did. And some of us were like, no, we're not going to sign with a major. And some of us are saying, well, let's just do it. Uh, and it'll last for a year and we'll have a really good time and they'll dump us, which is kind of what happened, but it lasted a little bit longer and it, and it obviously snowballed way beyond anything we would ever have imagined right. i mean still today that one song you know i get my royalty statement and you know 95 percent we have like 200 songs or whatever and 95 sure. percent of it is from that one song and uh it's insane 20 years later and and you know it's split between ten people, eight people in the band and management, and you know it's not enough to live on. But it's, it gives me the freedom of thinking. Right, I don't have to work forty hours a week. I can work twenty hours a week and twenty hours a week trying to do music or art. It just gives me a little bit of a cushion. Uh, now, this <laughs> day obviously and age, now, I'm not working twenty hours yeah. a week because I work in a cinema and I work in a high school, and they're both closed. Oh gosh. But, yeah, I work yeah. in a bakery, and I'm down from full-time to 16 right now, and yeah. man, we'll, we'll, I, we're, we're hoping for the best. We're technically considered a grocery store at this point. Yeah. Takeout only. Um, yeah. So we're feeding our neighborhood, but... Um, That's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a... Uh, Rough times. I know that you're you're working on some new music. I I, uh, I was checking out your latest single, Elect Elect the Clown, Expect the Circus. Elect a clown, expect a circus. Elect a clown, expect a circus. For decades of denial, some three ring circus trick. Enter, Batman creepy, a stupid apprentice, juggler. I've continued, you know, after Chumbawamba, I thought I was going to write books. I did write one book. But uh, I very quickly fell back into playing solo shows, which I'd done in the early days alongside Chumbawamba. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I make albums. So the last one was 2017, and then I kind of did a re-release last year. Uh, but then... Uh, 
we have this new double album that's coming out. Well, probably around May, maybe June, officially, but it will start circulating soon. And it's basically all the stuff I've written since Trump got elected. And it became, I didn't even know it was going to be a double album, but there's all these little theatrical bits, kind of like some of the Chumwamba albums. Right. But it's like pure theatre, a lot of it. Uh, and they have music behind most of it. And there's, I don't know, there's probably like 17 characters on the record. And it, so I, I'm thinking, yeah, it's 2020, it's election year. And I have all these songs, that, you know, and it takes me back to, you know, punk protest during the Reagan years, really, Reagan Thatcher, you know, yeah. Trump. Uh, and, and I thought, well, it's going to date really quickly. So I, I, I kind of wove these, like, three narrative threads around it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, totally pleased with it. Uh, I can't wait to hear the rest of it, honestly. I think yeah. it's very poignant. Yeah, and it's, it's very appropriate for what is going on. And might I say, the music video is very disturbing. It's disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you put it, it's weird. We did it last year. We first put playing makeup on. We have a friend who does makeup and it, it instantly changes you and it's creepy. It's creepy. You know, you like catch yourself and you're like, oh God, I look so creepy. And you pull a face and it's even creepier. Uh, but it, it, it just kind of fit as a metaphor for how, and even today, you know, what's going on at, today even and what's been going on with the Democratic primaries out. You know, they've pushed Joe Biden to the front. But he's absolutely AWOL. Where is that now? He's just... Yeah. Nobody can find him. Or he, he can go in front of a camera for like seven minutes and then... Yeah, he's hiding now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and, and he, you know, it's because I whatever is in me that makes me want to create, it seems that music or theatre uh, is the the best vehicle. And it's funny, you know, Chumbawamba were theatrical and we had these characters in songs and costumes and, you know, I made some of the costumes or whatever and or made some of the props. Uh, and, and since moving here to Twisp, which is a small town, but it's like a little semi-progressive pocket in a wider eastern Washington, which is very Republican. Uh, and they have a theatre, a community theatre. They have two, actually, which is unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, somebody said, oh, we're doing uh, Christmas Carol, Scrooge, and it's Charles Dickens, and you're English, and you used to being on stage. You've got to be in it. <laughs> and so they convinced me, and, and then I did another play and another play, and I really enjoyed it. And I'd never done proper theatre before at all. Right. Uh and then, like I see uh, in the local newspaper, oh, we need a drama coach at the high school. And I applied, thinking, oh, you know. And I got the job. I don't think anyone else applied, basically, because it's part-time and crap pay. And, but I've been doing that now for seven years, and now I do it with an English teacher as part of a class. I don't have a teaching certificate, but wow. I get away with it because I'm a drama coach, like a sports coach, kind of. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah, and, it, you know, we've done some interesting stuff here. and but So now, you know, and, and Kira, who's in the video, I'm, we met on stage in a play, we were in a play together. And, you know, it just, 
she would, we would, you know, we were out drinking one night and she was there with her friends and she just jokingly said, oh, damn it, do you need a backing singer? I said, actually, I do, because I had this show and the guy wanted the full band from the uh, 2017 album. And he's, he's, you know, when I make albums, I, I recruit people because I know it sounds way better if you have like a full band and, you know, singers on it and everything. But uh, I, I I was never like a band leader kind of guy in Chumbawamba at all. Uh, right, that was a split duty operation. Yeah, and so I've had to kind of learn that. And but it, and I can do it to make records, but I, I can't get a band together to go on tour. It, it's just financially prohibitive, especially where we live. And so we we do a local thing with three of us, and then sometimes me and Kira go on tour as a duo. Uh, we played in Olympia a couple of times actually last year and the year before. I know. I that. I, I guess I'm just out of the loop. I haven't been uh, performing really uh, since I had children. I kind of. Uh, that, that's why I'm doing this now instead, sort of. Yeah, that I, I, I was the same. You know, my kids were born in 2000, and you know, Chumbawamba. We all had kids at roughly the same time in Chumbawamba after the big album. Mm. And we we kind of it really changed the way we did things. We didn't do tours. We made albums and the odd music video, and and kind of for a few years just played festivals in the summer. So it was just like weekends during the summer. The rest of the time we were at home, uh, and we could do that because we were getting paid well and everything. Uh, and then we moved here, and uh, you know. I was kind of the stay-at-home dad, and the mom went out to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but as they get older, you know, especially when they get into teenagers, oh, suddenly I have a bit more time where I can, you know, write songs or play a show, even, you know. And so, yeah, the last few years I've kind of upped my game a little bit, you know, uh, putting stuff out and playing more, and it's cool, uh, you know. And you know, we I have a couple of tours booked, but in starting in June, we we're supposed to come play in Olympia actually. But I, I, as of this moment, I don't know if they're going to happen. Right. They haven't cancelled them officially, but yeah, I they wouldn't cancel that far ahead yet. But no, stuff in May is starting to go, starting to be cancelled here. Uh, other other art events, but. We'll see about that. So, with the uh, full-time Chumbawamba thing, when did when did that start for you, and how long did that last? Where it was like a full-time gig, all you all you were doing. Okay, so yeah, we we you know our first show was in the beginning of nineteen eighty-two, and basically for ten years we did it part-time. We all had other jobs, or we're in school, or you know, in the early eighties you could get unemployment and basically do whatever you wanted. It was hardly any money, but we were like, yeah, we can live off this. We all shared a house or whatever. Uh, and that became to get, that got more and more difficult and, and people got more and more serious about, you know, college stuff or, or career, maybe paths. Uh, and, you know, we'd like all take our vacations at the same time so we could go on tour for a few weeks or whatever and, do these other shows and some years we played a lot and some years we didn't and we'd make records uh, and it got to a point where we said and it's like when I turned 30 
coincidentally. Right, we have to do this properly or give up. And we had a meeting, a couple of meetings, and basically we all decided to try it, you know, just give up our jobs or school or whatever and try being a band. And we got this agent. We'd always booked our own shows prior to that. And he was absolutely shit. <laughs> so he lasted about six months. But then this other agent kind of headhunted us because we had a pretty decent following. You know, we'd get like 500 people at a show or 1,000. And, you know, we had records that were out there and people bought them. But we never really made any money from doing it. We just put it into the next record or whatever. Or we, or we had a van. We bought a van, you know, and we, or a computer, you know. <laughs> we had all these, we, you know, things you need. Uh, and anyway, Paul, the new agent, was fantastic. And suddenly we were like playing 120 shows a year starting in uh, 1992. And and as a result of that, you know, the album sold way more. And we actually started making money off the records and getting paid for playing shows. And none of us had kids and we were still probably mostly had cheap rent and we could do it. Uh you know, we were doing that, I guess, for five years, and then we had the big album, and then it just kind of exploded in a different way. Uh, and then I feel like maybe the peak of your career is when you got the opportunity to dump a bucket of ice water on the deputy prime minister. <laughs> yeah, one of them, definitely. Uh, we were always kind of, we had that prankster element, and it, it was just like, suddenly we are on this, much huger platform and it was like the british equivalent of the grammys you know and we're invited we're like oh we don't want to play the record company oh you got to play it you're okay as a budget you know you you can do you can you know build a stage set and so basically we we uh employed a, the guy who made our music videos he he, he made uh these films to project behind us uh and it was all footage of the uh what was it called? Reclaim the Streets. So it was like pre-Occupy movement, but a similar thing in England, you know, like environmentalist, uh, anarchist kind of uh, movement. And, and uh, there was all this protest footage and we played and we changed the words to the song and like we did sometimes in live settings. And we're thinking, yeah, we've made a statement, you know, and, it, and it's like this huge event, you know, and... Uh, you know, like Spice Girls are there and British actors hobnobbing and politicians. And, you know, as the night goes on, you know, and they provide food and drink, you get more drunk. And I was always the one in the band, if there was a dare, I was kind of the most easily convinced to do it, you know, the whole naked things and everything. It was usually because some of the other guys put me up to it. And... Uh, same in this instance, Paul the best. I said, "Oh look, John Prescott there," and he's like the equivalent of the vice president here. And at that time, his department were basically, and we'd done a huge benefit for uh, Liverpool dock workers who were being shafted by the government. And it was when Tony Blair's government was pretty new; they hadn't been in power very long, so people were still like, you know, when Obama got elected, "Oh yeah, it's a great time of change and hope," but it wasn't. And we kind of knew that, and a lot of people on the left knew that. So it's like, yeah, well, what, so what, what do we do? Oh, there's these huge buckets where they have the chilled champagne and wine, and they just 
at the end of the night, they're just full of ice water. And so, oh, throw it on. He's there. He's like 10 tables away. Just go and throw it on him, damn bit. And Paul <laughs> and Alice had one from behind. And they're probably actually getting more wet, but he could see me. So, uh, and it caused a huge fuss, obviously. I tried to get away, and the police, the plainclothes police, jumped me, the security people, and, you know, they, like, held me for an hour. And they're like, oh, we're going to throw the book at you. And then he comes back, you know, the head, the whole head of, like, I guess, like, an FBI kind of guy equivalent. Oh, well, we have to let you go because Mr. Prescott doesn't want to press charges, but we know who you are, kind of thing. And uh, kind of unbeknown to me, really, you know, the next week, go back to the hotel and carry on drinking and fall asleep. And the next morning, yeah. the phone starts ringing at eight in the morning. And I'm literally on the phone for like three hours fielding calls, you know, because the newspapers, because there was no big news story that day, the next day, it was like front page news. Wow. And then I think, oh, shit, I better ring my mum and dad because they're going to find out about it. And I talked to my mum. And the the press, you know, the Guta paparazzi press, were on her, my parents' doorstep at 7 in the morning. Oh, my God. And they took the way in. And, you know, my mum makes them cups of tea and gives them biscuits and shows them, like, old school photos. And suddenly, there's, you know, there's just pictures of me from being a teenager. And, and you know twisted stories you know they c completely exaggerate details and uh yeah, everything else and it was, it was interesting you know to see how that all works like first hand and it, you know it lasted i don't know like a week or whatever and we went on tour to japan so we missed a lot of it wow so was uh, it good publicity yeah, and, you know, like, you know, the record company, like, oh, you've got to apologize because his wife got wet, you know, you were terrorizing the women. We're like, no way, no way he deserved it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they sent him flowers, but we didn't, we refused to apologize because it was a statement, you know. And, uh, but we quickly learned, you know, we were, like, you know, I said, like I said, we'd, we said we'll sign this deal with major labels and we'll have some fun with it. And we basically burnt all the bridges pretty quickly. You know, we were on David Letterman. We changed the words to the song. So we're singing Free Mumia, Abu Jamal. And, and, you know, we got, after that, the rec you know, and because of the thing in Britain, the American record company wouldn't invite us to the MTV Awards because they were frightened we'd do something and... You know, Letterman were furious with us. Yeah. Uh, I think one, the video got nominated or something. No. No, I don't know. But basically, you quickly realize that if when you're in that world, if you don't play by the rules, like most of those bands do, you know, the classic example being U2, you know, Bono, having his picture and hanging out with George W. Bush. Yeah. If you don't play the game, then very quickly you don't get invited back. And, and if you, you know, if you question that system, you, 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 you get ostracized. And we knew that and we didn't care. We just thought, right, we're making a statement. You know, we, do, we, we have to do this. We have this platform and we have to use it in some way. Uh, 
and he, he reminds me now of what is going on like with Bernie Sanders. You know, he's alone amongst the Democrats. He's questioning the system, and, and it, you're not allowed to do that. And that's why they, they've been so... The establishment, you know, the mainstream media uh, have been, you know, basically stop Bernie. And even if it means Trump gets re-elected, stop Bernie. Because that he's challenging, you know, the status quo, you know. Yeah. And a lot of these people, some of the Democrat, you know, DNC establishment, they've had a very good life while Trump's been in power because they can get loads of donations and they don't have to work too hard. And some of them really don't care if he gets reelected. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. As long as they stop burning. Cause, yeah, yeah, because Bernie and the movement which is unusual. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime in England or U.S. Me neither. Where there's thousands of people who are donating and saying, yeah, we want actual change. And the coronavirus thing now, it's like they're all, not that they'll uh, necessarily act upon it, but they're all suggesting things like, yeah, we, you know, we can give people a thousand dollars or whatever it is. Whereas, you know, all through the primaries until like a week ago, it's like, oh, Medicare for all. How are we going to pay for that? How are we going to pay for that? But now it's like, yeah, if, if you know. We have uh, to. Yeah. And and it, maybe, just maybe, because this is happening all over the world, it, it won't go the way it usually goes because this is so unprecedented. There's a chance that, people you know and we haven't even got the tip of the iceberg yet of what's going to happen with the virus in this country you know they're saying like maybe a month or six weeks is when it's going to be a total uh, exponentially having exponentially exploded you know and uh, people are writing about it you know on the left and progressives and, and and maybe there's enough impetus to actually uh you know, destabilize the the system that we've had for 40 years. But who knows, because we know that won't come without a fight. But right. They're not going to give that up easily. Well, I know that people are, uh, yeah, scraping by all over the place. And uh, in Boff's book, there was a really good uh, trick that you guys used for your mail order. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Uh, involving soap? Oh, soap. People did, it was like, you know, in the early days of the anarcho-punk rock scene, you know, whenever, you know, before email and computer, before cell phones. So basically, we'd organize gigs by snail mail or, or, or send cassettes out by snail mail. And, and, you know, maybe book tours by going to the call box on the corner of the street, book shows or whatever. And I don't know where it came from. It was just like in a punk scene. Oh, if you, if you, you know, you put the stamp on there and if you rub some soap over it, you know, they postmark it and then you can scrape the soap off and there's no postmark on the stamp so you can reuse the stamp. So it was just like a total DIY punk thing to do for a while. And then I think the, the post office obviously caught onto it and... I don't know if they changed the word, the ink they use or whatever, or, or they just sent it by. They refused to deliver it. I think that's what they did. Uh, uh, 
it lasted for a while. And he's, we were like, you know, basically squatting in a house at the time with little money. So if we can save a few quid on stamps, <laughs> we'll do it. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more things like that where people just have to improvise with whatever is around to get by, you know. And it, I mean, it's so weird that, you know, because we have to try and distance from each other, you know, maybe the way it goes is the people who get it and get over the virus, are then they don't even know the science of it, but one assumes that once you've had it, you're not going to get it again. So you can then you can go help people properly. But who knows? About that. Hopefully yeah. that's the case. Yeah, and I know, you know, I've read things, friends who are involved in, like, helping communities. I mean, where we live here, uh, people live more spaced out anywhere, but we have had, you know, and coming from England, it, it was an absolute learning curve for me, but we didn't really have it last year, but that, the three previous years and then the gap and the one before that, we had very unprecedented wildfires uh, you know, and and from that, the community here, which because it's a small, small town anywhere, we're probably a lot more close knit. Even though there's people on the political spectrum, from you know fundamentalist Christian uh, Trump supporters to liberals to progressives to lefties like me. Uh, when that happens, you kind of have to work together, you know, because we're all in the same boat. And it's kind of the same with this, I think. Uh, some of the hardline <laughs> political differences, you've got to kind of put to one side to try and deal with the reality of getting through the day, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the, the communities here learned a lot from the fires, and so... Now that this is happening, we have a bit of a experience, maybe, even though this is completely different. Uh, but just in realizing that, you know, yeah, you've got to try and help people out if you can. Uh, yeah. You know, one one weird thing I've noticed is uh, I do I do tend to walk a lot in uh, my neighborhood, and. Um, it's been so gorgeous weather out here, like uncharacteristically so. We're, we're like verging on summertime over here. And normally when you walk around and it's a beautiful day and you see a stranger in the neighborhood, you like maybe smile and nod, you, you wave. It's, it's like a pleasant, distant, nonverbal interaction. It's becoming, it's become more distant. And if you make eye contact, you just look at the other person and they look back at you and you're both saying, man, yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it's funny. I, I had a cough the other day, two days ago. I started with a cough. I'm like, right, I've just got to stay in. You know, it'd be, uh, I got to sterilize yeah, my phone. Uh, I'd been, I went to the store the day before <laughs> that. And, you know, the store, the main store in choice, he, he is really kind of because of the fire thing. He, you know, he was, that was the community hub when we had the fires. You know, they had information tables there. And after the first year, he, he you know, because as soon as we have a fire, the electricity for the whole valley goes out. If it, the fire burns through a pole, because it's all over red lines. Uh, but he basically, hang the guy, he got generators. So 
people could still get supplies, you know, and, and you could still get gas or whatever. Or, uh, and and it, it and it's it's kind of the same now. They're kind of holding down the fort, really, because uh, pretty much everywhere else is closed, uh, or just like you guys doing takeout. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, it's a real, it's a whole new ball game. As yeah. Say over here. So yeah, I wonder if that'll change. You know, like because we're like, yeah, like I got a, a the FedEx gig. FedEx guy came with a box for me today, which I'd ordered like a week ago. And I didn't think they were even going to bring it, but he did. And you know, I went out to meet him on the porch, and we just kind of he didn't put it we he had one hand on the box and I, <laughs> my hand on the other end of the box and i tried to say you know i said like thanks i totally appreciate you coming out and he like nodded and, yeah it's just shit you never thought about before yeah yeah uh, well uh dambert normally these shows are um sort of meticulously edited and full of uh, full of clips and I spend, you know, upwards of, you know, five to 10 hours of editing work, but I'm trying to get this out in a timely manner. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I was just wondering if, uh, you might want to suggest a song or two that, um, people who maybe had no idea about anything besides that one song, um, what like a couple tracks that might be really representative, and I have my own opinion, but I'd like to hear what you think. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> yeah. Uh, what were you, what would what did you come up with? I, for me, it would be uh, do you know the WYSIWYG album, the album after the big album? Yeah, yeah. So I, that is my favorite album, probably. If I it's a very one. good one. Yeah. So anything off that. Bacon, it has been such a very informative and lovely conversation with you. I, I really appreciate you taking time to to share with us. Cool. Do, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, I, well, just I, I say I should send you a couple of tracks from the new album. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, please. You do. know, I'll send you like the you know uh, probably the next lead track, and then uh, maybe a couple of the little theater bits, just so you get an idea of. Of, of that it's not just like a straight record <laughs> but yeah I'll that do that sounds good yeah excellent okay well it's been a pleasure maybe I'll run into you someday when uh, you're around Olympia and we're not quarantined <laughs> yeah if things kind of you know calm down a bit and we can move around a bit more we'll definitely be back in Olympia sooner or later great I'll keep you posted 
All right. Well, thanks again. You have a lovely night and stay safe. You too. Thanks. Appreciate it, Mark. Take care. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Rewind back to 1971. To chart the origins of this most recent chapter in the mamocratic rise of oligarchy in the United States. Conservative think tanks. Spawning over the free market fundamentalism of Milton Friedman. Look him up. And the infamous Lewis Powell memo. Look it up. Sent to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, urging that business should assiduously learn the lesson that political power must be cultivated and used aggressively and with determination, without embarrassment. Do the math. Plot it on a graph. The neoliberal dance of the goalposts over time, which put Obama to the right of Nixon. Testable in the equation that correlates escalating profits for big fossil fuel with greenhouse gas emissions going through the roof of our narrow and fragile atmosphere. Demonstrable in the paradigm that it takes over 30,000 workers earning annual median income to add up to one person becoming a billionaire. So science and critical thinking are under attack because why? No, no.